you got your Bible, turn with me to Jonah chapter 1. Working verse by verse through this book, we started it last week and uh, had planned to start this series August 1 for, uh, for a month or two, and uh, when this all happened, I did not want uh, to not start the, the, the series, and so we went ahead and started it last week, and hopefully you were able to join us, but did an overview last week. Now I want to come back, and, and let's just begin work verse by verse through these four chapters over the next uh, however many weeks. I'm not sure exactly how many it will take, but it will take us uh, a number of weeks to get through this relatively short letter. Jonah chapter 1. We're going to be in verses 1 through 3 this morning. But as you heard last Sunday, the, the message that we hear in Jonah is this. God said, go, and Jonah emphatically said, no, right? He just said, no way, I'm not heading that direction. He gets up and he goes in the opposite direction. I heard about a, a mother of three unruly preschoolers uh, this week, and a little story I came across, and uh, really had a lot of trouble with her kids. And so one person asked her, said, you know, if you could do this all over again, if you could go back and have children, would you do it all over again? And she's like, sure, I, I would do it. I just wouldn't have the same three. And I, I would change it up a little bit. And so as you think about that, and you, as you think about us as God's children, it makes you wonder, does God ever have that sort of sentiment toward us? Is he disappointed in us if he feels that sort of way toward his children? Disobedience is never an option in God's family. It wasn't an option in the home that I grew up in, but I'm probably a lot like you. I tried to push those boundaries as much as I could. I tried to uh, act out in my independence, and that was oftentimes met with the repercussions that I was told about, right? Uh, and so every time I tried to do my own thing, tried to be independent, tried to make my own decisions, which were outside the rules that my dad had set as parameters, that was met with the consequences that he warned me of. And, and so I learned pretty quickly that it wasn't in my best interest to do my own thing. And as I think about that, I doubt many kids ever fully understand why obedience is so important. Why is it important that Children, or for that matter, anyone, obey those who are above them. Most likely, they, children don't just, uh, don't just know that obedience is important because, or they know it's obedient. getting twisted. I'm preaching a week, I guess. They know obedience is important, but the reason they think it's important is just because they don't have to face the negative consequence. That's what I'm trying to say here. But here's what I've understood. If you're a parent, grandparent, you know this to be true. When you have your own kids, you begin to realize that obedience is so much more than just a simple command. It's so much more than just, if you do this, what I've told you not to do, here are the consequences. So in other words, if you don't want to experience the consequences, don't do this. Now, that's part of obedience, is you miss out on the negative. But the really big reason about obedience is because when we disobey what we've been told and commanded, we're not just disobeying, we're rejecting the one who's told us not to do that. And so when it comes to the Lord, the same is true. Disobedience is not just a, react, a rejection of our parents' rules or the Lord's rules. It's a rejection of our parents and the Lord himself. In essence, it's saying this. I know better than you. I don't need your protection. In fact, I really don't even want you. I don't want you over my life. I don't want you near my life. I want to do my own thing. And the prophet Jonah here emphatically disobeys God's command. God says, go, and he says, no. Last Sunday, as we did this overview of this dramatic tale, we learned that the story of Jonah is so much more than what we typically think of Jonah and the whale. 
It's literally a story about a man who's on the run from God, who's actively seeking to subvert the will of God. He's not just trying to escape the command. He wants to change the command. Verse 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with him to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. Father, this morning, I just pray that you would take these verses, open our hearts and our minds. God, speak to us in our situation, whatever that may be. So I'm here listening online or in person. Lord, what they need to hear today is your grace and your mercy and how your love abounds and how you desire to be in relationship with all people. God, what they need is to be drawn to Jesus. Lord, others who are in the faith this morning, Lord, they need to hear. I, I need to hear that you've called me into your service, and my answer has to be yes. Yes to share the gospel, yes to serve, yes to do whatever you call me to do, us to do. So God, open our hearts and our ears that we could see and receive what you're saying to us this morning. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. I appreciate that, Brad. It seems to be getting better. I don't want Ricky to yell at me, so I won't put it there. All right, Jonah chapter 1, as we've read these, what we see is God is issuing a call to the prophet. Look there, verse 1. It says, the word of the Lord came to Jonah. I think I said last week that this phrase, we're going to read it and see it seven times in this book. If we were to read through the New Testament or the Old Testament, we would see it used 90 plus times. It's significant in how it's used. The word of the Lord comes to Jonah as it comes to all of the prophets. If we were to read, as I said, we would see that the word of the Lord came to David. It came to Abraham. It came to Solomon. The word of the Lord came to, to Jehu and Isaiah and Jeremiah. The word of the Lord came to Ezekiel and Habakkuk and Zephaniah and Jonah and so many other prophets of God. In fact, I think we could also write our own name into this. The word of the Lord came to John's. The word of the Lord came to Nay. The Lord, word of the Lord has come to James. In other words, what, what we're seeing here is this is not a call to salvation. It's not a call for salvation. It is a call to service. It's a call to <clears throat> a man to join the Lord in what the Lord is doing. It's not a call to salvation. He said, how do you know that? Well, in all of these calls, these people that I just mentioned, David, Abraham, Jehu, Zephaniah, whatever prophet you want to put there, the call is to heroes of the faith who are in the faith. It's not a call to salvation. It's a call to serve the Lord as a result of salvation. And so that's what's going on here. Jonah, as a man of God, hears from the Lord and is called into service. When you think about service, you've probably heard someone say this, or, or maybe you've thought this yourself. I really wish the Lord would do something with my life. I wish that, that the Lord would use me in some sort of way. I wish that, that God would take my life and, and make something of it for himself. You ever heard anybody say that? Have you ever thought that for yourself? i got two responses to that sort of sentiment. If you don't know how the Lord wants to use you, here's two things. Number one, you might just not be listening. 
I believe the Lord is always speaking to us. I believe the Lord's always calling us. The Lord is always moving in us or moving us along. And the reason we're not hearing probably is because we're not listening. Uh, most of our wives in this room would probably say, what about us husbands? We've got selective hearing. I'll tell my wife, I emphatically have selective hearing. I, I just tune you out when you say, honey, I need you to do this. And then she comes with a switch, and then I get, and I get in line. And so we, I do what she tells me to do. But the reason you don't know what the Lord wants to do with your life could be that you're not listening. Number two, it might just be that you've said no. You see, the Lord's calling you. He wants you to be in the service. He's got a plan for your life. He didn't just call you and gift you so that you'd just go and do nothing. No, he gifted you so that you could be used for his glory and for the good of others. And so the reason you don't know what the Lord wants to do with your life could be that you've said no so long he's just stopped calling you. He's just stopped nudging you in a certain direction. So those are two reasons you might not know how he wants to use you. And a lot of times the excuse behind someone's no involves what they perceive as their giftedness. So they're going to say something like this. Well, that's, you know, that's not my area. You know, someone in our church will come and, and try to recruit you for a certain ministry or certain team. And, and the response is, ah, that's not really my thing. That's not my giftedness. That's not my talent. That's not my thing, if you will. And so your no is on the table rather than the yes. The call to service here for Jonah was a call to preach. He says, the word of the Lord came to Jonah and it said, arise and go. Go to Nineveh. Go to preach. This call does not come down to whether or not the giftedness or talent is there to do the job. God just says, I want you to go do. And so for us, the call is not, it's the same. It's not whether or not you have the gift or the talent to share the gospel or do the service. It's, has God spoken? Has God called? You see, when God calls you to share his word, he's not looking for your level of expertise. God doesn't call professionals into the ministry. God doesn't call those who have everything together, that they have all these, these wonderful abilities and, and they're just a gift to the Lord. Now, that's not what the Lord does. He calls the unequipped and then he equips the call, right? That's what he does in our life. Part of my responsibility and our other pastors on our, on, on our leadership team, our responsibility is to equip the body for the work of ministry. The body's ministry or, or the body's responsibility is to simply say yes. Yes, Lord, to what you're leading me and calling me to do and thankfully he does gift us for that but the yes has to be on the table first so the word of the lord comes to jonah and it tells him to go to nineveh and to preach i told you last week a little bit about this city it's a legendary capital city of the empire of assyria the Assyrians were known to have been some of the cruelest people to have ever walked the the earth they were brutal in fact historians tell us that asher banapal the grandson of sennacherib was accustomed to tearing off the lips and the hands of his victims. Can you imagine that? Someone that you're, you're warring against and you want to send a strong message to your enemies, what do you do? You rip the lips off people while they're alive and tear their hands off. That's brutal. Tiglath-Pileser, another leader of Assyria, it said that he used to flay his victims alive and then pile their skulls in big mounds of skulls. Just literally like you're flaying a fish, just alive. That's a strong message. Brutal. That, that, that takes what ISIS and other terrorist groups do to a whole nother level. That was the Assyrians. 
So Jonah here is called of God to go, to preach against their sin, to speak against their wickedness. And what was his response? It was, no, I'm not going. And so as God's man, as God's prophet, obedience obviously was not up for debate. God was not saying, hey, if you, if you get around to it, if you'd like to, I know you don't like these particular people, but I'd like to send a message there. If you've got time, go to Nineveh. No, it was obey, obey, this is what I'm calling you to do. And so let's just think through this. I want to pragmatically think about this in, 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 in obedience. In other words, what were some pragmatic reasons for his obedience? Let me give you just simply three. I think it, was, it made sense for him to obey because of his call as a prophet. Jonah was God's prophet. He, he was God's servant, 2 Kings 14, 25. We looked at last week. Uh, he, Jonah was called to advance God's kingdom through obedience, to preach the word. He belonged to the privileged band of men who stood in the presence of God, who heard the Lord's instruction, who, who God revealed to them what he was about to do among the nations. He was a prophet. There was great pressure there. was great strain there. There was great conviction there. And so you, you think about the prophets, and many times they were so uh, uh, inundated with the calling and the pressure of God because of what they had heard, they couldn't help but preach. And so when you think about his obedience and why he should have been obe obeying with the Lord's call in his life, it makes sense because he was a prophet. He heard from the Lord. How could he not deliver the message? Secondly, he should have obeyed because of his predecessors. John's immediate predecessors in this prophetic ministry were Elijah and Elisha. You remember those prophets? God used them in mighty, mighty ways. In fact, it was them during their lifetime that God began to break through the silence and began to speak through his prophets once again. There was a period of silence before them. And then God began to speak through Elijah. And what did Elijah do? He calls down fire from heaven there on Mount Carmel and, and burns up that sacrifice. His ministry was hard. He stood against King Ahab and that wicked woman, his wife, called Jezebel. There's a reason we don't name our daughters Jezebel. She was a wicked woman. And that was the calling upon Elijah's life, to stand against her and her wicked husband. Elisha, too, was called to a difficult ministry. He followed uh, Elijah's ministry, and he saw him caught up in a whirlwind, and, and he went on to do incredible things. One of the things that he was called to do was to bring healing to Naaman, the commanding officer of the Syrian army. He was uh, a leper, and, and so he had heard that there's a prophet in Israel, and so he comes, and Elisha is the one who heals his enemy, right? Hard ministries that these two men were called to. Jonah was a predecessor of that, or, or I should say a successor of those men. He would have learned from them. There's a third reason, I believe, that obedience made sense, and that is his past successes. Again, 2 Kings 14, verses 23 through 25, that small snapshot, that small window of Jonah's early ministry suggests that his service was crowned with at least a measure of successfulness, right? He preached to Jeroboam II. He says the borders are going to be extended. In other words, God was prophetically saying, we're going to shore up the boundaries of this nation so that my people are not wiped off the face of the earth. And that came true. And so the people of God, Israel, would have known this. They would have remembered this. And they would have also remembered that what he said came true. That's the test of a true prophet. 
He forecasted the extension of Israel's border, and it came true. And so if I'm a prophet of God, and God has used me in such a way, it seems that if God now is calling me to his service, I would go and do it because of past successes. What are some reasons, pragmatically, for his disobedience? Let me give you three of those. His hatred of the Ninevites. Makes sense that because of these wicked people and his hatred of them, that he would disobey. And so when we think about his hatred of the Ninevites, the Assyrians, what are we to deduct from that? Here's what I would say. Jonah was a racist. Now, I understand that that term is way overused in our culture. Everything in our culture today is racist if it benefits the one who's making that claim. So I get that. I'm not trying to, to play on that. But he literally was a racist, and it culturally made sense at this point in history. How do I know that? Well, at this point in history, the Hebrews, God's people, viewed everyone outside of the Hebrew people as Gentile, as second class. We're God's people, we're God's chosen, we're God's uh, uh, elect, and they are the damned apostate, wicked Gentiles that God cares nothing about. Now, we know that that's not true. Their understanding of that misrepresents the Lord's heart. And we see that in chapter 4 as God makes this argument back to Jonah when they're wrestling back and forth after the people have repented. But the Jewish people would not associate with Gentiles. In fact, the the Ninevites, because they were Gentiles, but in in addition to that, because of their wickedness, because of their cruelty, it made sense, relatively speaking, for Jonah to hate these people. They're pagans, they're idolaters, they're wicked, they're cruel, they've been incredibly abusive to his people. He hated them, he hated their race. Secondly, we could say his fear of his people might have been a reason for his disobedience. Now, this is a stretch, I'll admit, because it's not found in the text. We've got to do a little bit of subjective uh, maneuvering here. But for the sake of argument, think of something with me. Let's just consider it. The Jews knew Jonah to be a prophet, right? They knew Jonah had prophesied to Jeroboam the second. They knew that his prophecies had come true. And so they know God has used him in the past. They know God will now obviously use him in the future. So if the Jews hear that their prophet is going to their enemy and preaching to them, the graciousness and the mercy of their God might pull his hand of retribution back right they know god to be gracious they know god to be merciful they know god to be loving it's all of the things that that jonah lays out to the lord in an argument back to him i knew you were going to do these things that's why i didn't want to go that's what he says and so it's perhaps possible that the jews might have pressured jonah or at least he thought they might pressure him because they know who he is they know his effectiveness as a preacher but more importantly they know the graciousness of god so they pressured him not to go we don't know if that's What happened? But it's a possibility. A third reason, pragmatically speaking, for his disobedience, that would be his subtle disregard for God's word. The prophets often describe the sharpness of receiving God's word as in their spirits. They would describe it as a burden on their shoulders, excuse me, or a hammer breaking the rockiness of their hearts. Jeremiah talks about the word of God coming to him, and it's like fire in his bones. He's weary of not sharing it, preaching it, making it known. 
That's what the prophets experienced when God spoke to them. Jonah, uh, we know, had once experienced, he had once enjoyed this kind of relationship with God's word. And so what the Lord spoke in the Bible, the prophet quickly delivered. And so it would seem then that he would be quick to deliver the message to the Ninevites. But instead of rising to preach, Jonah rises to flee. That's what verse 3 tells us. Why the change here? It could have been the result of subtle and ongoing disregard for God's word. It started small. It started with a lot of guilt. But over time, it got easier. Not such a big deal. There's not so much guilt there. And it's also, in human terms, a greater level of disobedience. In the, in the beginning, it's God said this little small thing, and it's like, nah, I think I'm going to do something else. And there's a lot of guilt there, but you're still going to go along with it. And then the more you do it, the greater the disobedience becomes, but the less guilt you feel. You tracking with that? Let me illustrate it with, with a story from Chuck Swindoll. Chuck Swindoll, you probably uh, listened to him on the radio for years. I uh, love Ch- Chuck Swindoll's preaching and, and his illustrating abilities. But he tells a story about when he was a boy, he used to have a paper route. Now, Carter, you guys who are younger, you may not know what a paper route is because no one reads the paper anymore. It's like, what is a newspaper? Is that the thing that comes on your tablet? No. It used to be, as us old people know, uh, daily in our in the yard or in a box or something out there by the mailbox. And so uh, Chuck Swindoll, as a boy, had a bike route. And so he would roll the papers up and, and he would take them on a route and deliver them and do all those things. And so one particular day, he rolls up his 200 papers and he t- goes and does the long route, probably a hot day. And as he's coming back to his house, he's, uh, he, he, he's tired and he comes up to the corner of a big house that's not far from his. And so he has this idea, man, I'm tired. It's been a long day. I've started early. It's hot. If I just cut through this yard, I don't have to go up and down and kind of out of my way to my house. I can do a little quick shot across this yard and be there in no time. So he's wrestling with this as he comes up to the corner and to this particular estate. He knows the house. He knows the owner. He knows the type of man this person is. He knows that he's very particular about his yard. He knows that the yard is lush and it's beautiful and and it's like, you know, the perfect lawn that all of us men dream of. So he wrestles with that for a little bit and decides, I'm going to cut across. Soon as his tires begin to hit the grass, guilt just comes all over him. Man, I can't believe I'm doing this. Oh, so-and-so is not going to be happy. I hope he's not home. I hope he doesn't see me. This is going to be awful, but he doesn't stop. He keeps pedaling across the grass, right? He's like, no big deal. It was only one time. I'll never do that again. Next day, same thing. He's out. He's, he's up early. He's rolled the papers. He's, he's uh, done the route. It's hot. He comes to the corner there, and he's like, just one more time. I'm just going to do it this one last time. Gets across the yard, gets over. It's not as much guilt this time, but he still feels bad about it. But it's over. Two weeks have gone by now. He comes up to the corner again. He begins to have the same thoughts. Wow, if I just cut across this, I'm going to save some time and get home, get, get on the rest of my day. Now as he gets into the yard, he can see that there's no longer just lush plus grass, plush grass. Now there's a path. His wheels have made a path through this dude's yard, but he treks on. After the third week, there's a sign right there at the edge of the sidewalk. Stop. 
He looks at the sign. He, he, he knows that everything is on that sign except for his name. He knows it's because of him. And yet, he disregards it, goes right around it, and on to the house. See, what happens as a small, disobedient, subtle disregard for the Word of God is like Chuck Swindoll here in his personal story, wrestled with, with difficulty, but the more you disobey, the more you subtly disregard, the easier it becomes. I believe that's what's happening in the life of Jonah. His disregard for the word of God earlier now makes it possible to blatantly, in the face of God's command, say no. So with that all in the background, how does Jonah's story relate to our stories today as followers of Jesus? Well, Jonah was called to preach against sin. What are we called to do? We're called to make disciples of the nations. See, evangelism is at the forefront of this book. God is gracious. God is merciful. God is loving. He's abounding in love. He does not delight in the disaster and the destruction of people. And that's who our God is. Jonah understood that, and he refused to be the prophet who brought the word of God to a sinful people. His disobedience was not just a simple disobedience. It was a rejection of God himself. It's a rejection of the lordship of Christ over his life. So what can we learn from his disobedience from this passage? Let me give you three realities of disobedience this morning. They're in your, your bulletin. Number one, disobedience breeds disobedience. Verse three, it says that Jonah rose to flee. Jonah rose to flee. You see, disobedience is a slippery slope. Uh, the story I just shared with you from Swindoll illustrates what I'm talking about. It starts small, and then it gets big. It, it, when you, this, this winter, hopefully we have some good snow. You get out there on a good sledding hill. What happens? You don't just start out at 60 miles an hour. If you go 60 miles an hour on a sled, uh, invite me over. I want to be a part of that because that's going to be awesome. Um, and I'll up my insurance policy before I come. But you don't start out at max speed. You start out slow, and then you gain as you go down. That's what happens when we disobey the Lord. It breeds disobedience. So the first time is always the hardest. It's always the most guilt-ridden. And then it becomes easier with each deviant act. Now, the Bible doesn't give us a full description of how Jonah walked away from the Lord, how he began to disregard his word. We can only speculate here. But I believe it's safe to say that it began subtly and it became more pronounced. And so let me just speak to you as a follower of Jesus real quickly. And specifically in the area of evangelism. This is what it might look like. As we talk about disobedience breeding disobedience, it might look like this. God's Spirit has tapped you on the shoulder, began to prick your heart with maybe Romans 6.23. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. And you begin to wrestle with that. You begin to understand, man, people who are not in relationship with Jesus, who are condemned in their sin, and rightly so by a holy God, there is danger lurking for them. I need to share with them. And you also begin to understand, like 2 Peter 3, 9, that God wishes that none should perish, but that all would come to repentance in faith in Christ. And, and so you understand that God has a heart for lost people. He has a heart for sinners. And God has really impressed that upon you, Right? He's compelled you to share, and he put that person on your heart. Maybe it's a family member. Maybe it's a co-worker. Maybe it's a neighbor down the street. 
And you're thinking, I've got to share the gospel. I've got to tell the story of how God has changed me because I was once a sinner. I was once under condemnation. I was once undone. You begin to feel that, and, and you're like, yeah, Lord, I'm going to do this. And the next time you're together with this person God's placed in your heart, for whatever reason, you never get around to even having a gospel conversation. And then the next time you're together, the same thing happens. And the next time, and then eventually you come to a point, you don't even think about that person's salvation. You don't even think about them needing to know Jesus. And then it just trickles on down to where you come to a place where you're like, well, that's not my responsibility. I'm not, I'm not responsible for them. That's the pastor's job. That's the evangelist's job. And then maybe you get to a point because you've said no to this for so long. Now you're the church member that says, why do we even need to support evangelism? Financially, why do we even need to pay for missions? You say, how could anybody come to that? I know people in the church like that, not here. But I, I've stood as a pastor in a church and, and said, I feel like the Lord, not feel, I believe the Lord's calling us to do this, to, 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 to do this evangelistic emphasis. And I've had literally a deacon stand up and say, the, there's a lot of ways to share the gospel rather than spend $7,000. I've had that conversation. Now, how did that man get to that point in his life? I believe it's because he said no to sharing the gospel, and then it became a pattern in his life so much so that he's like, we don't need to do that. Disobedience breeds disobedience. Secondly, disobedience causes you to act like an unbeliever. We all view life through a certain lens, whatever that lens may be. We call this a worldview. Right now, the world in which we live is chaotic. <laughs> it seems to be spinning out of control. You're just wondering, like, well, what's going to happen next? What wheels are going to fall off next? Uh, I think people are losing their minds. That's my sentiment. You probably think I'm losing my mind. Uh, here's what we do know. There's deep division all around, not just our country, but a wor the world, right? That's the world in which we live in. And so what's happening because of this division is people are aligning around ideological perspectives. Here's what I fear as a church in our community is that people will be drawn to our church because of our pers personal ideological positions. Let's never allow that to happen. Here's what I want us to always be, a gospel-centered, Bible-believing, evangelistic church. That's what we need to be, not we, we don't believe in masks or we don't believe in what, you know, throw that stuff out. I, I have those opinions, but as a church, that's not where we stand, okay? That should have gotten some sort of applause. I got a few head nods. Maybe you disagree with that. If so, we'll talk later. But we can't rally around those things. We can't be caught up in those messes because oftentimes we're the worst in that. And I'll be honest. Uh, my attitude has stunk many times over the last 18 months, and I constantly have to be uh, reminded of, of that by the Lord. But here's, what, here, here's where I'm going with this. I've heard Matt Chandler, and I listen to Matt Chandler uh, weekly on podcasts while I'm at the gym. Here's what he's been saying to his church in, in Dallas. We're built for this season. It's a simple statement. We were built for this season. What does he mean by that? It means that as the world is spinning out of control... What's the one constant? The Lord and hopefully the Lord's people. 
We have the words of hope. We have the words of encouragement. We have the words of life. When everything is seeming to spin out of control, we hold on to the one who holds it all together. That's what it means. So we're built for this moment. Rather than engaging in the division and the rhetoric, Christians ought to be the ones who stand up and offer love and hope and peace. There ought to be a sense of saneness in our lives in a world of insanity. And it should be evident to people. You say, what does this all have to do with Jonah? If we were to continue on the story, and we're going to as we move forward in these weeks, we get down to where the mariners, the ship people, uh, they go to Jonah, right? Because things are, I mean, verse 4, God throws a storm. We'll talk about that next Sunday. And so they're trying to figure it out. They're casting lots of like, who's at fault here? And the lot falls on Jonah. They go to him and they say, who are you? Where are you from? What do you do? What's your people? They have no idea that this is God's prophet, right? They have no idea that this is the prophet of God. When the storm is raging, they're trying to figure it out, and rather than Jonah standing up and bringing sanity to an insane situation, he is asleep in the bottom of the ship. It's his disobedience that caused him to live like an unbeliever, and that's what happens. When we continue to disobey God, we live like an unbeliever believer. Lost people do not view the world through a biblical or Christological lens. They don't view the world, hopefully like you and I do as followers of Jesus. They don't recognize the sovereignty of God over every situation. Therefore, they understandably react differently than we do. Everything is changing in our world right now, and much of it's not for the better. And yet we have to, as Christians, understand that he's still in control. But this was what we know. We don't want to realize this, or we don't want to acknowledge this, but our nation is no longer a Christian nation. It's not. Now, I didn't say it wasn't grounded on that. I didn't say that it wasn't built on Judeo-Christian principles, built off the Word of God. I didn't say that. I'm saying in actuality, in the way we live as a culture, we are not Christian. That's in the rearview mirror. That greatly disturbs me. It makes me very concerned for my kids and my grandkids to come. But it doesn't cause me to lose hope. Because I know that God's still in control. You know what's going to happen to America one day? America's not going to be a country. Every nation that's ever existed has risen and fall, fallen. That's going to happen to America one day. So is my hope in the Constitution and the Bill of Rights and all of the things that we've enjoyed, the freedoms as America? No, my hope is not there. My hope is in Jesus and what he promises us right here in this book. I'm living for a new heaven and a new earth. Now, do I want to just divorce myself from this culture today and say, I'm just, I'm there, I'm I'm living for heaven? No, I'm not going to divorce myself from this. I'm still going to try to be a light and a force of good and a voice of reason. But the only way I can be a voice of reason is when I continue to hold on to the Lord and his word and the hope that I have in him in the future, it's not on the things that are here. So I'm not going to live as an unbeliever without hope. What I'm going to do is this. I'm going to point people to Jesus. You see, the only hope for our world today is not greater, better legislation. we got a bunch of goofballs in Richmond and D.C. that make stupid legislation. I'm trying to be as nice with my words as possible. And I'm not talking about whether they're donkeys or elephants. They're both buffoons. That's why I'm running for El Presidente. I'm just kidding. But we, can't, we will never legislate righteousness and holiness. 
But we can share the gospel and allow Jesus to transform every single person one at a time from the inside out. And at the same time, still stand for what's right. We should stand and get against and speak against things that are evil and wicked. We, we should go and be a part of our school board here and say, you know what? We as parents and as citizens, we will take a part in this. We're going to take a role in this. We're not going to allow you to steamroll over us. I've been engaged in that. I've never been engaged before. But a few months ago, I began to be engaged in the school board here because I have children and I'm a citizen that pays taxes. I need to have a voice there. I'm even going so far, because I live in District 4, to consider running for that school board position. I don't know if that'll happen, but that's something that's on the, on the plate there. If the Lord would have it. But I want to have a voice. But ultimately, we're not going to legislate our school board, or our school system, or our county, or our state, or our nation. We're not going to legislate righteousness. As we were walking through the book of Revelation last year, you get to those latter points, and I, I told you the way I see the end times, is that it's a, there's going to be a time uh, before the millennial reign where God, Jesus is going to vanquish, but he's not going to kill everybody. And so the people who make it into the millennial kingdom, who are not followers of Jesus, will bow their knee and give lip service to Jesus, but their heart's never going to be in that. And so when Satan is released from the bottomless pit or, or from bondage, he comes back and he gathers them and they wage war on the city. Their heart's never in it. You can't legislate righteousness, even in the millennial reign of Christ. It has to be a change from the inside through the gospel. Jonah here is the man of God, the prophet of God. And rather than living a life of evangelistic preaching and evangelistic leaving, he's running from the Lord. I heard Matt Brunson say this. On a sermon I was listening to, I think I was supposed to say it earlier in the sermon. I don't know where I'm at in the sermon anymore. Uh, but he said this, uh, to some to this extent. Anytime a man's running from God, he's always going down. He, Jonah goes down to Joppa. Jonah finds a ship. He goes down into the ship. Jonah goes down into the inner parts of the ship and goes to sleep. Jonah's cast over into the sea, so he goes even below the ship, right? And then you would think that uh, when the fish swallowed him, what does he do? He goes down deep. So he's running from God, and anytime you run from God, you go down and down and down and down. We don't want to be like that. Instead, we want to hold high the Word of God. You see, that's how Christians respond to taking a stand or changing the, the, the world in which we live. We're never going to do that by uh, lowering the Word of God. We're going to do it by raising high the Word of God, by leaning into the Spirit's leadership. We're going to offer the gospel to people and a culture who desperately need it. A transformative encounter with Jesus is what this world needs. It's what this world needs, not legislation. Jonah hears called of God to go. His response is an emphatic no. That no shows us that rebellion against God's call is a rejection of God himself. It's more than just a simple disobedience. It is a rejection of the lordship of Jesus Christ. You see, every time that we, as a follower of Jesus, say no to whatever God's call is, we're saying no to his lordship. I don't need you. I don't want you. I don't need your protection. I don't want your protection. I don't need your blessings. I don't want your blessings. I want to do it my Self. Does that sound like anything in the Bible to you? Sounds a whole lot like the Garden of Eden. 
God says, here, it's yours. Just don't eat of that tree. The serpent comes along and says, man, did God really say that? God's holding back on you. He knows that if you eat of that tree, you're going to be just like him. And he doesn't want that. He's holding back. So rather than enjoying all that the Lord had given them, that one thing he says is off limits. They said, I've got to have that. I don't want your lordship over my life. I want to be God myself. When we disobey the Lord, even in something that may seem to you as so insignificant as evangelism, sharing the gospel with a family or friend, it's disregarding and rejecting the Lord's leadership and lordship of your life. God wants us to see ourselves and the subversiveness of our hearts in this story. How often, just a couple questions here. How often do we blatantly disregard God's word? When he says don't do it, because we know better, we do it anyway. The act of disobedience leads to more disobedience. Because we love our sin, we want to keep it, and we refuse to allow it to be exposed to the light. I mean, who, who, which one of us really wants our sin to be drugged into the light? And so we wind up living like unbelievers rather than those who've been transformed by the gospel. Evangelistically, this is true. God's called you to go, and who are you to go to? You go to your family, you go to your friends, you go to your neighbor, you go to your coworker, you go to the store clerk, you go to the peoples around the world. That's what God's called us to do. And so here's a question. When was the last time you shared the gospel with somebody? When was the last time for that? I know this is an uncomfortable conversation. We would probably, as Christians, rather never have this conversation. But let me ask you another question. Can you call yourselves a Christian if you never want to share the gospel with somebody? If you're so scared to share the gospel, can you really say that you're a follower of Jesus? I mean, how do you know that you've had his spirit indwell you? And because when you have that, you can go and do anything, right? God didn't say, hey, go do it because you're awesome. You're, you're Billy Graham. Go and do this. But yeah, you're not so good. You sit on the sideline. God doesn't say that. He doesn't say that at all. He calls the people who are the most unworthy of this position. Who are the 12 disciples? Peter's a cusser, cuts a guy's ear off. He's got emotional and anger issues, right? And, and then when he's confronted about the situation, he, he's out the door. He's not reliable. John is, I don't know, he's, he's a good guy. I guess I shouldn't pick on John. He's the beloved. Uh, John, uh, uh, Judas was obviously had a devil. I mean, he was a, a terrible person. Who's Paul? Paul, before he's Paul, he's Saul. He's actually murdering Christians and imprisoning them. God doesn't call the wonderful. He calls the terrible. He calls you and I. Are we going to be faithful to that? Man, you got a sermon this morning that started with some weird voice issues. And now I don't even know if I said the second point because I've been all over the map. But here's what I want us to hear. As we work through the book of Jonah, I want you to hear God's call for you and I to be gospel evangelists where we live, work, and play. Man, our world needs that. As our kids go back to school, they need, uh, they need to be gospel lights on their campuses. We hear all the time about how um, more and more children, more and more teenagers are, are, are contemplating suicide, even taking that action upon their lives. What do they need there? Not psychological Bible stuff. They need a friend to love them like Jesus loves them. 
and to share the gospel with them because that's the only thing that can, can transform their life. We need to be evangelistic as a people. I can't do it. Our, our, our staff can't do it. We don't run in the circles that you run in, but you do. And so God's put you there. I had a conversation. Man, I got to stop here. It's 10 10. Good night. My mind's going. I got so much to say. But I, I had a conversation with, uh, with a gentleman who they visited some this, this summer and asking me a question about off campus small groups. You know, our small groups will meet after this in just a moment. He's like, What are your thoughts on that? I was like, I've always wanted to have both on and off campus small groups. It's just one of those things that when we begin to have this conversation with the person as a potential leader, it really struggles and it breaks down when we start to talk about what do we do with children. And so that's a conversation. But I said, man, I'm all for it. I think it's an awesome thing. And here's the reason. It's because when you start or we start a small group in a neighborhood, it's not just that we're sending people to that person's house, but literally it can become a gospel lighthouse within a community right there where they're more apt to go to that person's house because they have a relationship than they are to come to this house because they don't know us. So they're, they're little satellites of Red Lane all over the Powhatan community. I'm all for that. So we want to do that from a small group standpoint, but you got to live like that first. You don't live where you do because you found a good deal in a house. You live there because God in his sovereignty and providential uh, wisdom puts you there as a city on a hill. 